Open your Bibles this morning, please, to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'd like to ask what I think is a very interesting question. If you could do just one thing, what would it be? If you could do just one thing, what would it be? You don't have to answer out loud or anything, but I, I really want you to think about that. Uh, boy, there's a lot of lot of answers that uh, you would get from a survey like that. If you could do just one thing, what would it be? Well, I I don't know how you would answer, but I have no doubts about about my answer. And uh, in fact, I I'm on safe ground because I believe it was uh, exactly how Paul would have answered. If uh, if I was to preach all that is on my heart this morning, I have to take you through a verse-by-verse study of this entire Ephesians chapter 3, and that, well, that would take several hours, and we probably wouldn't be through with it today. So uh, all I can do in this short service is to try to sum, sum it all up, and uh, to do that, I want you to look at verse 7 and verse 8. Paul says, Whereof... I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power unto me who am less than the least of all saints is the grace, this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. If we had time... Uh, I would also read Romans chapter number 9 in the first three verses. In fact, I'm going to take time to do that. You might not be familiar with it. Romans 9, he says in verse 1, I say the truth in Christ and I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then in the first verse of chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Looking at these verses here, you cannot help but be amazed by Paul's great love for those who are lost. But while that's a notable fact, that wasn't his greatest motivation. It was his love for the Lord, not his love for the lost, that drove him more than anything else. So this morning, I'm going to answer uh, that question. If I could do just one thing, what would it be? Well, hopefully what I've been doing, what I hope to do the rest of my life, the same as Paul and, uh, and that is my heart's desire, as Paul put it, my heart's desire would do in some way be able to convince the world of what a wonderful Savior that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, to me, would be more important than anything. I, that's why I love that old song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Thank God for that. I, I wish I could... You know, I wish I could get the whole world to see him as the one who is described in the Bible, the one who is altogether lovely, the chiefest among 10,000. As Paul put it, the one who is all and in all. And if I could do that, 
then I'd be able to meet man's deepest needs. I'd be able to fulfill his greatest desires because only then could he find the satisfaction that he's been looking for in life. You see, it's man's failure to see Jesus for who he is that causes him to do what he does and to become what he is. And he has no hope of ever getting better until his eyes are open as to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because without that knowledge, he has no hope. Without that knowledge, there is no help. And as a Christian, it's my duty and your duty as a child of God, and it ought to be our glorious delight to tell others about Christ. I could never do anything with my life more important than that. And yet, this morning, I have to confess that neither I nor anyone else could ever adequately even describe Christ. I, I, I turn to Ephesians chapter 3 on purpose because, as you know, Paul, in speaking of Christ, often used superlatives in order to exalt him. He speaks about the unspeakable gift that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, though as Paul is saying, look, I've, I've tried every word in my vocabulary, every word known to man, and there is simply no word, no phrase, no, no, uh, no eloquent auditor that is able to, to ever really capture exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is like. And, and I, I still couldn't describe him after all of that effort, that be like trying to add sweet to honey or heat to the sun or moisture to water or red to rubies. He's beyond our comprehension. He is beyond our comparison. What do you compare him to? He's unlike any other. He's beyond our confession, regardless of, of how carefully we word our confession as to our beliefs in the Lord Jesus Christ. We always have to come to the same conclusion at the end that is, he is incomprehensible. Now, that doesn't mean that he is unknowable. Although he is not knowable completely, that doesn't mean he's completely unknowable. And I say that with confidence because God has chosen to reveal a great deal concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to know what is knowable. Because no subject is of greater interest, no subject is more important no subject is more inspirational than the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who come to a knowledge of Christ will feel as the, as the songwriter must have felt whenever he or she wrote those words, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. More truer words have never been spoken than that. And being instructed by the Scriptures and being informed by the Spirit of God we just stand in awe at his attributes. We find pleasure in his person. We wonder at his works and marvel at his miracles. And we have to admit that uh, we absolutely cannot possibly describe him. We can't even praise him as much as he deserves because what he deserves goes far beyond what we're able to supply but all that being said, there is something that we can do. And, and, and I can tell you this morning what God has, has told us about him. The Bible is full of it. 
It goes all the way back from Genesis and all the way through the book of Revelation. It speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the heart and the center of the book. It speaks about His person. It speaks about His perfection and His plan, His power, His provisions, and all of the great promises that He has left for us. And so we can rejoice in what God has revealed to us about Him. So with all of that in mind this morning... I want you to consider what we know about him. Naturally, we don't have time to, to speak about everything. We don't know everything, but we do know some of the things the Bible declares. We know his claims, for example. We know what they are. The Bible records his very own words. And in addition to all that the Bible says about Christ... Throughout all of its many pages, we read also of numerous quotes uh, from Jesus himself, claims that he made. We find eight of those I am statements that he made over in the Gospel of John. He said, I am the bread of life. That, that's a big claim, amen? He said, I'm the bread of life. And he said, if you eat of this bread, you'll never, ever get hungry again. Isn't that good to know he not only saves, but he satisfies. He said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. But the most profound of all of those statements is found in John chapter 8, verse 58, where he simply described himself as, I am am you see that sums it all up that opens the door to a world of truth he's just simply telling us i am god i am the creator i am the one who controls absolutely everything and so whenever you read all of, all of the claims that he's made you have to you have to come to the conclusion that he is either a liar a lunatic or lord and I've made up my mind, and I think any intelligent person would have to come to the same conclusion, and that is he is Lord. I say that because it is a fact that he proved. He proved he was Lord by his power over the grave. Whenever he was raised from the grave, it proved the greatness of his claims. We have no reason to doubt any claim he made about who he is or what he came to do. So we know about his claims, but we also know about his character. You know, anybody can make a claim. I, I've met people that made all kinds of outrageous claims. I met a man in the psychiatric ward of a hospital years ago who really believed that he was Christ. He said he was. That was a claim that he made. And many others have done the same thing. So anybody can make a claim, but they can't always confirm what they say. Jesus did both. Jesus made the claims, and then he turned around and confirmed what he said. In other words, he has proven his promises by his person, by his character. You see, the chief confirmation of all of his claims is his character. You can believe what he says because of who he is not just a matter of what he has done, but who he is. We have no reason to doubt anything he says because of what he has already done. So about all we can do is try to sum it all up. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, 
we find the summation of his character here. Notice what it says, verse 26, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Here we learn that he is holy. Now that has to do with his relationship to the Father. Remember the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you can apply that to every aspect of the Lord's life. At every moment of his life, the Father could say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus told the truth when he said, I do always those things that please him. Now that couldn't be said of any other person who's ever lived on this earth. And because of his holy character, we can believe everything that Christ said in, in fact, we'd be fools not to believe what he said. After all of the proof that he has given, we know that he is holy. That's his relationship to God. But notice not only that, this verse tells us that he is harmless. That has to do with his relationship to man. And think about it, in spite of all of the evils that was perpetrated against him, I mean, he was hated without a cause. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was nailed to the cross. And in spite of all of that, there's not one time that Jesus ever mistreated anyone. He was innocent in every way. He was free from every fault. He was honest in all matters and without guilt in any sense whatsoever. Wow, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. He's holy and he's harmless. But not only that, the verse also tells us that he is undefiled. And this has to do with his relationship to himself. He's undefiled. Now keep in mind that he was tempted in all points such as we are, yet without sin. So he is pure, he's clean, he's free from any blot, any blemish. He is perfect in absolutely every way. Oh, when we think about the greatness of the temptation that he went through. You remember there up on the mount when Satan tempts him. In fact, Satan, who is the God of this world, offered him all of the kingdoms of this world. He said, I'll, I'll, just, I'll turn it all over to you. Well, we know that the Lord is the rightful owner anyway. But Satan, by the way, was willing to sacrifice everything, you know, uh, just for the sake of a compromise on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he resisted every temptation. Sometimes it seems that we forget that he, although he was God, he became man. He made himself man. He went through temptations just like you and I do. And yet it tells us that he was undefiled. But then his character is further described by, by the writer saying that he was separate from sinners. This has to do with his relationship to the world. He's separate from sinners. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that he refused to have contact with sinners. That doesn't mean that he had a holier-than-thou attitude, that he went through life holding everybody at arm's length. The truth is, he was known to be the friend of sinners. 
That was one of the criticisms that the self-righteous Jews used against him. This man is a friend of sinners. He's over there with them. And notice, look at what they're doing. They're drinking and all sorts of things. And what's he doing over there with them? They criticized him for being among sinners. He was among them. He walked among them. But understand, he did so in order to minister to them. That's why he reminds us that we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. We're to minister to those that we come in contact with. But he was separated from them in that he did not follow their ways. He did not participate in their sinful pleasures. He was not influenced by their bad behavior. He was one of a kind. He was unlike anyone who ever lived. We're talking about pure perfection this is his character he is holy harmless undefiled separate from sinners but that doesn't tell the whole story because he says here he was higher than the heavens higher i wish i could understand that i wish i could explain that to you i mean that goes far beyond what i can possibly comprehend it could apply to his resurrection and his ascension and his glorification it could apply to that and no doubt it includes that but it speaks of his exaltation in absolutely every sense of the word however you apply it this ought to be the one thing that sums it up to our satisfaction to know that he is higher than the heavens not just the atmospheric heaven, but the heavens. He's higher than any power in all of the universe. Oh, it's so sad that so many do not see the loveliness of his character, but someday they will. Because the Bible says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is what? He's Lord. They'll come to realize then that he is indeed higher than the heavens. So here we see by his character that he confirms all of the claims that he made about himself. But now here in Hebrews, verse 27 again of chapter 7, no study would be complete without this where he speaks of his crucifixion. We know that about him. We know that he was crucified for it says here he offered up himself. Now, if you read the entire context of that statement, it has to do with, with his contrast to those imperfect priests who offered up animal sacrifices year after year after year that could never take away sins. But Jesus didn't offer up a lamb. He didn't offer up a dove. He didn't offer up something of this earth. He offered up himself, it says. I don't have words to even comment on that. I couldn't describe it. It's beyond what I'm able to comprehend or be able to explain to you when you think about the glories of the cross. But what I'll tell you is this, that it is the very centerpiece of all gospel preaching. And Paul made that clear where he said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Then he said in Galatians, God forbid that I should glory or boast, that is, in anything save in the cross. So many times we think about the gospel as being a message that, that only the unsaved people need to hear, but the truth of it is nothing in the world is so inspirational and so needful than for Christians to hear the gospel over and over and over to be told and reminded that Christ is the only suitable sacrifice for man's sins. Nothing else could ever suffice. Due to the greatness of God's love, He gave His Son. And due to the love of Christ, He gave Himself, it says here. In sacrificing Himself, He became our substitute. He died in our stead. He paid our sin debt. And whenever we realize the greatness of his love for us, there's no reason for us to ever doubt God's love. When we think about what he did, the price that he paid, and notice here it says, this he did once. One time. That was all that was necessary. His sacrifice was complete. All of Hebrews chapter 10 deals with that and describes how that those earthly priests as year after year offered up these animal sacrifices. And keep in mind that was a good thing because that's what God directed them to do because those sacrifices all served as, as simply as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why John the Baptist there, the beginning of his ministry, when he saw Jesus coming, said to those round about, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And whenever Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, it's finished, that's it. The debt has been paid. There'll be no need for any other sacrifices. Thank God he did that once. And that tells me that it was, it was sufficient. The sacrifice was sufficient. Aren't you glad that nothing else needs to be done? It's not, look, it's not the blood of Jesus plus our good work. It's not the blood of Jesus plus our contributions or anything else. It's the blood of Jesus that washes away all of our sin. And then he says, I want you to notice again in Hebrews chapter 7, but this time I want you to look at verse number 22, which is so very important to what we're talking about. Hebrews 7 and verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. This speaks about the covenant that God made. So much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. I want to make sure you understand this verse because it's crucial to comprehending what Jesus did and, and also what he's doing. Because when we think about God's precious promises and sometimes we look at them and we think that is so amazing it sounds too good to be true but remember god can't lie and living in a world of uncertainty like we do it becomes easy sometimes for us to doubt because when we look around and think about the uncertainties that we live with and then we hear something that seems too good to be true like god's promises uh Satan does everything in his arsenal to get us to doubt those wonderful promises. And when we're dealing with man, we don't have any guarantees. 
Oh, they can write out a piece of paper and say lifetime guarantee. You can't depend on that. They can go out of business next week. And you have no guarantee when it comes to man. But here we see God's guarantee. And you can always rely on that. Notice the word surety there. It simply means a pledge. It speaks about a security. Maybe you put, as we think today, putting a security deposit down. It speaks about a guarantee. And the word testament here simply means a covenant. That is an arrangement between two parties. And here he's telling us that Christ is God's guarantee that his promise, that his covenant will be kept. He has given us a guarantee of eternal life. And Jeremiah chapter 32 tells us that this is an everlasting covenant. It's not something that, you know, just good for this year. It's not something that will just get you out of the foxhole during a war. It's not something that will just get you through hard times. It's something you can depend on at every stage of your life. And when you're there on your deathbed about to leave this old world, thank God you can sing, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Now, verse 25 of this same chapter I think it's one of the most wonderful verses in all of the Bible. It says, wherefore. Wherefore. In other words, because of, basically because of everything we've been talking about, everything he's written about, wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Think about that. He's able to, Save from the guttermost to the uttermost. And by the way, whether you realize it or not, we're all in the gutter without Christ. It doesn't make any difference if you're a bum or a banker. It makes no difference who you are or what you've done. Without the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in the gutter of life because the Bible describes us all as being sinners in the sight of God. It tells us that we all come short of the glory of God. And so in God's sight, we are all condemned to a devil's hell for eternity. But all of that changes when we notice what it says, come unto God by him. And those who do are saved. And they're saved because of the fact he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You see, Christ is our life. He doesn't just come and give us life like there it is. No, He is our life. He indwells every believer. The only way we could lose our salvation is for Christ to lose His life. Let that sink in. That's the only way you could lose your salvation. He is our life. So for you to be able to lose your salvation means that his life would have to come to an end, and we know that's impossible. That's our guarantee. That is our assurance of an everlasting covenant based on what Jesus did. Now I want to close by going all the way back to where I started this morning. If you could do just one thing, what would it be? If you could do just one thing, what would it be? Well, Paul said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel. And by the way, he could have said 
for any sinner. And he proved that by his actions and his ministry to the Gentiles alike. But being a Jew and among the Jews ministering to them, he wanted them to understand how much it meant and what the desire of his heart was. And that's why he could say, I, I, I could wish myself accursed from Christ if it meant they would be saved. So, if you could do just one thing, what would it be? I made my choice a long time ago. I haven't always lived up to it as I should. I haven't always been the person that I should be. But I know what my purpose in this life is, and that is my greatest desire, and that's to preach the cross, to tell others about God's saving grace that was manifested through his sacrifice on the cross. Somebody said years ago, said Christianity without the cross is not Christianity at all, but a shabby, slimy substitute. That's right. You take the cross out of it, and folks, we have absolutely nothing worthwhile to preach. No reason for anyone. Some years ago, I remember it became the in thing to do among some churches and many of the denominations went through their hymnals and removed from the hymnals all of the references to blood. When you do that, you've just destroyed any hope that anyone has because it was the blood that paid our sin debt. And I look out on this congregation this morning and knowing you as I do, I know that by far and away the majority of people here today know Christ as their Savior. They've trusted in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. But oh, the thought of there just being even one person here today that might walk out that door in a few minutes and leave here and go out into the world without any hope ought to break our hearts. And it doesn't need to be that way. If you're here today and you don't know you'd go to heaven if you died, you have no assurance that your sins have ever been forgiven. You don't have that peace and that joy that Christians talk about. All of that can change this morning by you putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've already done that, if you're in the majority of this congregation and you already know Christ as your Savior, I pray today that every one of us might be challenged to use the rest of our life doing the most important thing in life, which is to tell others about the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, that they might know him as their Savior. Would you make that commitment this morning while we stand? As we sing this verse of invitation this morning and we invite you to come, however God might be speaking to your heart, whatever it is that, that God would have you to do today, it might be for you to just simply come and, uh, and pray about a burden or a need in your life. It might be this morning that you need to come and confess and say, Lord, I'm so sorry that... I have lost sight of what the most important thing in life is, and I've neglected my responsibility. I've ignored, I've ignored the spiritual needs of others 
in order to do what I wanted to do, and I'm so sorry about that. And it might be you're here today and you've never been saved and you have questions. Why don't you just come and let one of us take the Word of God and we can show you how, as John himself said, these things have I written unto you that believe on the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know. You can. And I hope you will. While we lift our voice in song, you come. 249. Ah. Uh-huh. 